Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. In our discussion with Jamie, we got onto a sidetrack because he had done PhD dissertation on the genocide in Cambodia. And this is a little bit off the main focus of the episode, which was uh, his book, Hacking Darwin. And so we've moved that content to the very end of the podcast, so you don't have to listen to it unless you're actually interested in it. But we do reference it a couple times in our discussion, and so that's why uh, we're putting this note at the beginning of the podcast. Corey, our guest today is Jamie Metzel, an old friend of mine. Jamie comes as close as anyone I know to being a Renaissance man. He does so many different things. He is a technology futurist, a geopolitical expert, and also a writer. He's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and formerly the Asia Society's executive vice president. I'm just getting started here. He is a former White House fellow. He held positions in the Clinton administration, both the National Security Council and the U.S. Department of State, and also previously with the Council on Foreign Relations. He is a graduate of Brown University. He has a Harvard Law School JD, and he has a PhD from Oxford in Southeast Asian history. Now, his writing covers both fiction and nonfiction. He's written two science fiction novels, Genesis Code and Eternal Sonata. And today what we're mainly going to focus on is his new nonfiction work called Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. Jamie, welcome to our show. Thanks so much, Steve. Thrilled to be here with you. But back to genetics and genetic engineering. So, Jamie, what caused you to get interested in that in particular, and when did that happen? Sure. Um, So I talked about my background uh, with Cambodia. I then uh, worked, when I was 18, worked in a refugee camp in Thailand with Cambodian refugees. Um, Then um, I worked for two years as a human rights officer for the UN in Cambodia. And all of those experiences made me feel, one, that we all have a tremendous responsibility to try to solve these problems. Because when you see people living in civil wars or living in in refugee camps, it's just horrible. It's, It's unacceptable. And my second realization is that you could spend your entire life working in refugee camps and you wouldn't fix anything because refugees are at the the bottom of the stream. And so the top of the stream is making smarter political decisions so that we we don't have these these terrible crises. And so then after that was what set me on the path to, uh, to government. And so after I graduated from law school, you mentioned that I was a White House fellow. My first job um, it was on the National Security Council, working for a really great guy, mentor, and, and now very close friend named Richard Clark. And this was in uh, 1997-98. And at that time, Dick was telling everybody who would listen, which was pretty much nobody, um, <laughs> that terrorism was this huge and fundamental threat to the United States, and that we had to be serious about it, and we had to go after this obscure terrorist organization called Al-Qaeda, and particularly its leader, Osama bin Laden. And all these people were saying, oh, this Dick, the Cold War's over. He's looking for a, a, new, a new job, and he was really ignored. And of course, Dick's prescient memo was on George W. Bush's desk, 
the day that 9-11 happened. And Dick had a whole plan that, that wasn't realized for what we could have done potentially to, to prevent it. So even before 9-11, Dick always used to say that if everyone in Washington was focusing on one thing, you can be sure that there's something much more important that's being missed. So for him, it was terrorism and cyber. And for me, as I looked around the world, I saw these little data points um, that told me the story, uh, at least in my mind, that the genetics and biotech revolutions were going to fundamentally change our world. And not that many people were thinking about that. And so I, I started educating myself. I'm a voracious reader, reading everything I could, tracking down people I thought I could learn from and talking with them. And when I was ready, started writing articles on the national security implications, the potential national security implications of the genetics revolution. revolution. And then a kind of crazy eccentric congressman, still in Congress, named Brad Sherman, gave me a call and he'd read one of my articles and he said, you know, this is so important. You're the only person talking about it. I want to do hearings based around your, uh, your article, this one article. Will you uh, be the lead witness and help me organize the hearing? So I did that and then was just was doing a lot more writing and speaking. And I, was, I felt kind of like Dick in the 90s, like this is such an important issue but I'm not breaking through. There's a few experts who are listening. I publish articles in journals like Foreign Affairs that are kind of wonky. And so I felt like I needed to reach a broader audience. And that was what led me to, to write my two uh, near-term sci-fi novels, Genesis Code and Eternal Sonata. But when I was on my book tours, describing the underlying science that went into the, the stories, when I explained the science in ways that just regular people could understand, I could just see their eyes widening, that they'd heard the words, but they hadn't heard the story of what this revolutionary science was and what it meant to them. And it was then that I realized that I needed to write a book for everyone, this, the nonfiction story of the genetics revolution, where it, come from, where it is coming from, where it is now, and where it's heading but not as some kind of wonky book that people would, would kind of read like people used to take castor oil, like it's probably good for you, but you don't want to do it. But something like a book that you could take to the beach, that you could read on the subway, that you'd be excited to read. And so that's what I've, uh, what I've tried uh, to do in Hacking Darwin. So both of your sci-fi novels, I think, have genetic engineering components. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, Genesis Code on, on a U.S.-China genetics arms race. And then Eternal Sonata focuses on the science of extreme human life extension. So you've, you've covered both the, the sort of fictional narrative approach to it and then also more kind of uh, science fact-based version of it. Let me read a couple sentences from the dust jacket of Hacking Darwin, and then you, you can react to it. Sure. Genetic engineering isn't some far-off fantasy. It's arriving faster than most of us understand or are prepared for. When we can engineer our future children massively extend our lifespans, build life from scratch, and recreate the plant and animal world, should we? At the dawn of the genetics revolution, our DNA is becoming as readable, writable, and hackable as our information technology. But as humanity starts retooling our own genetic code, the choices we make today will be the difference between realizing breathtaking advances in human well-being and descending into a dangerous and potentially deadly genetic arms race. So I think you, you hit on almost all the important aspects of this topic. Any, any thoughts since you wrote that? Well, lots. I mean, I, I certainly um, stand by everything in the book. Um, but, or I should say, and, 
this science is moving forward so rapidly. I'm just uh, now finishing the edits for the paperback version, which is coming out in, in April uh, 2020. And it's just incredible. This one year of science has just, it, it's in, the rate of this. I mean, it's hard to imagine now, at least for people in this world, that it was only 2012 that the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system was essentially invented. And it was six years after that that the world's first gene-edited human babies were born. Six years from this abstract Why, why did it take so long? Oh, sorry. Yeah, exactly. No, no, but that's the thing. I mean, that's the essence of all of this is the speed of change. And that's why I tell everybody that if you're looking historically for how long it takes for technologies to emerge, you are by definition being too conservative. I mean, that's the, that all of these technologies, there's a super convergence of technologies and they're all leaning against each other and propelling each other forward. We have more people who are literate, educated, connected to the world of knowledge, connected to each other than ever before. And all of those figures are just going up and up and up. And you think in different parts of the world figured out copper or bronze or whatever, thousands of years apart. So imagine if the you know, first, wherever in the world they figured out copper first, they just sent an email to everyone else on earth saying, hey, just figured out copper, here's how to do it. That's like a 2000 year developmental jump for some parts of, of the world. And then that's the starting place. And then the next day somebody figures out bronze, boom email to everybody and, and we're doing that in every field around the world and it's just it's unbelievable and so where this is heading is just beyond in many ways what our very practical brains are designed to fathom soon after the first CRISPR results came out Corey here was leading an effort at MSU to build our own gene editing core on campus. So we have a gene editing core up and running here, and I don't know what the latest statistics are, but plenty of uh, modified mouse models and other species as well have been produced there. Now, I think it was pretty obvious to everyone who was uh, engaged in biology that CRISPR was huge. And it, in fact, was uh, it, it was, didn't come out of the blue, right? There were zinc fingers and talons, which were um, optimized just a couple years before. But uh, you're right, there was an acceleration and there has been acceleration over time. I want to, I, I want to sort of push back because I think, I think I agree with part of what you're saying, but I think it's sort of complicated. You know, in some ways, technology, I think, at a kind of gross level, is clearly accelerating. But there's a long history of predictions of technological developments from discoveries that that never happened or took much longer to happen than we expected. You yourself discuss uh, stem cells. You remember, just after stem cells were invented, there's all this hype about curing a huge range of diseases uh, with these new techniques. We'd be injecting them into our brains and our bone marrow, and you know, all these chronic conditions and neurodegenerative conditions we had would be would be cured within a few years. And that turned out not to be true. Same thing happened with the Human Genome Project. There's an initial burst of enthusiasm about identifying all these diseases that had genetic bases, and that proved far more difficult. I think you have a line in your book by a scientist who was kind of having a mea culpa saying, we kind of confused understanding from, I don't know, uh, clinical practice or clinical effectiveness. So it's complicated. There is a, I agree with there is a broad trend of acceleration, but it turns out to be very, very hard to predict 
actual developments from scientific discoveries. I just like to hear your reaction to my. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And there's even a whole field of research on kind of the hype cycle and, and what it looks like. There's some kind of groundbreaking discovery. Everybody says, wow, this is it. It's going to change everything. Then we get too excited. And then it turns out that it's complicated and it's slow and painstaking. And then people say, and you can just insert any technology. God, you know, we thought this robotics thing was, or just insert anything, what a dud. And then along the way, after this kind of disappointment, it turns out there's really a there there. And it ends up building and building and building. And eventually, for many of these technologies, over time, it becomes even more revolutionary than people in the, in the early stages may have may have thought. And that, that hype cycle, really, it applies across lots of, uh, of, of technologies, just because all of this of life is always more complicated than our simplifying narratives would, would like it to be. Um, but I still stand by this general thesis that if you get billions of people interconnected, solving problems, uh, nobody has to solve a problem that's already been solved. So you're just optimizing human brain power in a way that has just never happened before in our in our history. Um, and we have a it's not like we're just imagining whatever, some unimaginable technology. I mean, we are laying foundations upon which many, many things will, will be built. Will they be exactly like we are imagining? No. But will there be other things that we can't imagine? Yes. And so it's it's for me as a, you know, as a I guess it's a self-declared futurist because there's no like there's no governing body of futurism. You don't like they don't play music and give you a little <laughs> paper. You know, that's always the 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 thing is that you try to have as much intellectual rigor in making predictions based on your analytic framework and try to figure out well what's real and what just sounds good but doesn't have the potential uh, to be real. But it's life is always more complicated than our narratives would suggest. I think if you look at older science fiction, I'd like to actually get your reactions later, Jamie, to some of the more famous sure. science fiction novels or TV shows that incorporated genetics uh, in them. But I, I think that the possible ways in which our civilization, humanity, could be changed by genetic engineering have been explored quite a bit conceptually. But I think what's different at this moment in time is that I would say there's almost no chance, I, I'm highly confident, that in the next 10 years— we will see really significant impacts on society and human life from genetics. And I'm, I just want to ask Corey whether he thinks that that's still too optimistic, like 10-year time scale. You think there won't be? There will be. There I think will there be. will be. I'm pretty skeptical of that. But what I'd like to say is I think it's important for all of us to um, try to get a little feedback on our own predictions. I actually have been keeping track of my predictions on this topic. And so, so maybe, maybe- Mine are published. Okay, well, may, have you been looking at whether they come <laughs> yeah, true or not? Yeah, they're, they're right on scale. They're right on time. I mean, I predicted that we would get the first accurate complex trait predictor five years. I predicted that in about 2014. It happened uh, actually a little earlier than I suspected. I have a prediction for when we'll be able to do cognitive ability with some accuracy. That's another five years. So That's slightly different, I think. That's not—I agree, that's, it's, that's, a that's on the line between research and sort of—I wouldn't call engineering. I wouldn't call technology, but right. I'm asking about— actually say improvements in lifespan, right? That's kind of oh, a different thing. I, I don't have any predictions about that. Yeah. Well, but let me, let me jump in, because I think defining the terms is actually really important. 
Um, so the reason why I use the word in, in the title of my book, genetic engineering, is I'm really thinking of the broad category. And, and so when I tell people I've written a book on, on uh, uh, human genetic engineering, nine people out of 10 will say, oh, you mean CRISPR. And I say, no, no, I don't mean CRISPR. What I'm saying is imagine that there's a pie that's, that's genetic engineering. And in that pie, there's a slice that's gene editing. And in that slice, there's a sliver that's CRISPR. And so Steve, with his, uh, the work that, uh, that he's been doing, he and others on um, polygenic scoring, there is a real world application. And that, world, that real world, world application now, there are few of them. I mean, the simpler one is just people getting their uh, direct-to-consumer genetic information, and that's already starting to happen. And then second uh, is this migration into IVF and embryo screening, and that's also its very early days, and that is, is starting to happen. And then there's the thing of uh, gene editing embryos, and, and you know, everybody knows that we had the world's first two gene-edited babies were born in China last year. The third has very, very likely already been born, although no one seems to know, uh, to know for sure. Um, so I think these things are, are happening. All of the categories that I write about in my book in broad terms are things that, are, that have already happened. And the question is, is how long is it going to, what is the adoption curve going to look like? But it's not a, a binary. It's not a yes or no, because yeah. yes has already happened. Going, going back to my question to Corey, I, I think maybe we had in mind different types of impacts. So like, 50% increase in human longevity or something. That isn't what I was thinking of would happen in 10 years. But but I meant things that are, at least in my mind, very substantive. But in your mind might have been like, oh, these are not really very impactful things. <laughs> but, no, it's, we should be precise about yeah, what we're yeah, talking about. Yeah. Because I think that's where a lot of the fudge factor happens yes, in predictions. They're absolutely. suitably vague and yeah, then they get so interpreted you, retrospectively right. to be accurately. Right. So you accurate. need some rigorous definitions of what you mean. Exactly. Yeah. Jamie, give us yeah. one example that you're confident will come to fruition in the next 10 years? I, I'll give a bunch. One is um, that we're going to see increased use of IVF and embryo screening by a much broader set of potential parents. So right now we have a little under 2% of people in the US um, are having kids through IVF. It's about 5% in Japan and around 10% uh, in Denmark and Norway. I'm pretty confident that those percentages are going to go up because taking conception outside of the human body, just it allows us to apply science to the process of baby making. Um, I also think that we're going to change in just a little bit by a little bit, but it's going to add up just the way we think about what a human is and what human potential is. I mean, right now, you know, a kid is born and we say, wow, this kid, um, they could be a great mathematician or maybe they'll win the Olympics in the 100 meters. But most kids aren't going to win the Olympics in 100 meters. Like take me, for example. I like to run. I do extreme sports. Um, there's nothing I could do to win the 100 meters with the biology that I have. It's just, and I think we're going to have to recognize that we are going to have relevant information, not entirely predictive, but um, probabilistic information that's available to us that's real. And that's going to change the way we think about fate and potential and even what a person is. And so that I'm pretty confident that it's going to happen over 10 years. So right now, as I said, there's two, maybe three uh, gene edited babies have been uh, born. My guess is in 10 years, there will be 
20,000, 30,000, very, very big numbers. It's not going to be, I talk with George Church from time to time about this. He thinks we're going to make, you know, 10,000 changes. I don't think that, but I think there'll be single gene mutation uh, changes to lots of uh, pre-implanted embryos, either uh, to uh, reduce some kinds of risks or to provide some kind of enhancements. And it's going to be impossible to, to categorize what is a therapy and, and what is an enhancement. So I, I think that we, I'm pretty confident that these things are going to change and they're, none of them are going to happen in like these huge steps. It's just going to be, as I write about in the book, a bunch of gradual steps, each very logically emanating from the last. So, so I felt that on a 10-year timescale, I, I counted sort of three predictions from you, and I, I agree with all of them. I'm, I, I just want now you and Corey to fight. <laughs> Look, I'd give you a pass on the first prediction because I think that's, a, that's kind of a very high probability event already. We already know that IVF is out there. We know that people are, you know, maybe are doing screening for certain kinds of conditions, and that's going to expand. So I, that's almost not a prediction. I don't mean to be too harsh on you, but that's almost not a prediction. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We're, we just, these are just category but, things, But, but right? I want to come back to the yeah. the gene-edited yeah. uh, question. I think that's a pretty substantive one. And the other is the prediction on traits. The gene-edited one is really interesting because that's going to require some infrastructure. It's not going to be a Chinese scientist allegedly doing this undercover, although we, in fact, don't know whether he did it undercover or with support of the Chinese government, you're going to have to have hospitals, you're going to have to have regulatory bodies, or at least having regulators look the other way in these cases. And so I think that's a kind of issue of public policy and the question whether people actually try to enforce these bans or not. But there are no bans. You're right. There are no bans. There are these discussions of bans, right? And yeah, the question is, is this going to turn into anything real or is it just a lot of hot air? Right. Let, let's take just that one because you have another one after that. Sure. But let's take that one. So I would say the infrastructure needed is basically what you have at any medium-large IVF clinic, actually, to do this. And that's actually kind of where he did it, He did it. So the infrastructure requirement is relatively low. And there are many countries, so many different regulatory situations. So even if 90% of them ban it outright, there'll still be uh, at least a handful of countries where it's legal. Um, And so, so far, I think your comments don't preclude it happening. I I think to me, the biggest variable is- No, I'm not arguing it's not going to happen. I'm just saying I think a lot of other attendant changes will have to occur. Okay. But 10,000, by the end of 10 years, 10,000 will have been born, 20,000 will have been born. Does that seem too aggressive to you or- No, honestly, I- I don't actually know how you'd assess, a, a, even by an order of magnitude, right, at this stage. But I'm hoping that if Manifold goes on for 10 years, we'll have Jamie back and we will check. Okay, so you're, you're, important. You, to, for, you're kind of on the fence. You don't think, you yeah, think 10,000 could 10, be way off. 10,000 is plausible, right? Okay. Oh, it's plausible. It's okay. plausible. I mean, okay. 2,000 is plausible. 200,000 feels... Too high. Too yeah. high. I, I, I'm kind of in the same ballpark as you. I think the main variable to me is... What is the main benefit that you can identify from, say, So a that's single... what I wanted to ask. I was going to ask, Jamie, what traits do you think will be engineered over the next 10 years? Yeah, so engineered is a strong word. And so because it, just in my general philosophy, when I think, well, what are, there are these very complex systems that we always don't fully understand. And then there are different categories of interventions. And in in very crude terms, I will say there are categories of intervention that don't require a complete understanding of the systems that are being manipulated and ones that do. And so there are, for the applications where you don't really have to fully understand the system, those are, are much easier for us to do. So 
for example, with the microbiome. I mean, there's this whole effort to fully understand the microbiome and, and how it functions. And it's just, it's so massively complex. It's really tough to do. But we also know that without fully understanding the microbiome, you just give a mouse a fecal, give a, a fat mouse a fecal transplant with some skinny mouse fecal matter and, and somehow the fat, fat mouse gets skinny. It doesn't require a complete understanding. And that's why when I talk about- It's not um, just IVF, mice. It's not just mice. You know, this phenomenon has happened in people too. Yes, yes, yes. And so uh, shifting that to, to genetic technologies, that's why I think that the real driver of these technologies is going to be IVF and embryo screening because we'll just have more and more information forever. And that's why the, the work on, on uh, polygenic risk scoring or just polygenic life scoring is so important. And we won't need to have a complete understanding. And if you're selecting from among 15 pre-implanted embryos, I mean, you'll just have a lot of information. Someday using induced stem cell, you may be choosing from 10,000 or a million um, pre-implanted embryos. And we're going to be able to drive a lot of change through that. So then after we've done the embryo selection, Provided that it's that it's safe and proven, and it's it's certainly not there yet. I'm part of the World Health Organization International Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing. It's a mouthful, and so we've put out a very strong statement um, saying anybody who gene edits a human embryo designed to be taking taken to term is acting unethically at this time. But that doesn't mean that's always uh, going to be the case. And so I think that the interventions that we're going to do, as I said earlier when they are safe, if and when they're safe, are going to be single gene mutation changes that confer, that eliminate some kind of harm. And for that kind of harm, uh, it will often be dominant single gene mutation, Mendelian disorders, or it will be benefits where there is a single gene mutation that confers some kind of advantage, whether it's virus resistance. Um, there's a long list Actually, George Church probably does the best job of maintaining this list of these single gene mutation changes that could be uh, potentially targets. And that's where, where Ho Jung Kui, I mean, that's how he got to the CCR5. And so I think it's going to be, though, it won't be engineering whole traits because most of our meaningful traits are genetically complex. For those traits, we're going to use improbabilistic embryo selection, but it'll be relatively small and discrete numbers of single gene mutation change. I think so, that's what, what's going to be the growth area. So just to summarize, the I think we maybe all agree that to get to that 20,000 number 10 years from now, there will have to be some countries in which it's legal. There will yep. be some beneficial single gene, single kind of edit uh, mutations that people find are desirable. And then the off-target safety issue will be largely solved by improvements or further testing of CRISPR. And th those are the three ingredients. And then 20,000 is not a crazy number. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And, and so for the off-target, I mean, off-target has been a huge issue. But when you look at, at, at the speed with which that problem is being solved, it's not fully solved yet, but it's just, it's getting more and more and more precise. I, I was on a panel this summer with a University of Chicago molecular biologist uh, named Bruce Lahn, who claimed to me that actually already from what he knows about mouse the off-target problem is a very minimal risk right now uh, in many cases for many choices of uh, vector. You know, he, he thought it would be solved for sure uh, in, in the relatively near term. Just to provide a little context, 
using a fact from your book, Jamie, you state that on average, as a man ages, there are 2.9 mutations that occur in sperm cells each year. And it's important to realize that that's something that is happening pretty much from the time of your age, you're 18 or over. If we're worrying about yep. off-target effects, which might be one off-target edit in a whole genome from CRISPR, you know, a guy like me who waited till age 47 have kids looks like I'm putting my... You're, you're a criminal. <laughs> well, I, I think you raise a great point, Corey, because, okay, what for the, again, for our audience, what he's pointing out is that older men have a higher error rate in the production of their sperm so that they, they get more mutations yep. in their sperm. You could compare what's the added risk to your progeny from waiting a year to have the kid versus doing the CRISPR edit, right? I think that's the that's analogy right. you're trying to make. Well, it's, and, it's partly that, right? But it's also the question of just what's the overall risk that we're concerned about, right? We seem very concerned about risk in CRISPR for all target effects. But we're not actually focusing on just natural no, absolutely. risk I, that comes from I, here. I think and and be, be concrete, right? These are not abstract discussions, right? It's quite well known that as men get older— Rates of autism in their children go up. In fact, yeah, they start we, going up by around uh, mid-30s. Right. We, we even know a phenotypical effect of those extra exactly, mutations yeah. is higher risk of autism. And I think you're making the point that people are, they, they don't think consistently about risk. So familiar risks, they tend to discount. And then if somebody comes with, hey, new treatment, uh, then peop- the bioethicists look at it extremely critically and they say, yeah, but what about this tail risk? And then your point is that we're already uh, dealing with tail risks of that size or larger in just men waiting longer to have kids. Is that's that- right. And that's a true for risks across the board, whether it's number of people dying from storms, lightning strikes, right. uh, mass Car shootings, accidents. et cetera, et cetera, yeah. you know, terrorism events. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And, and nature has an error rate. And so if, if this nature, whatever that is, was perfect... We wouldn't even be having this. We probably still would be having wouldn't this be conversation, but, but but nature has an error rate, and so that's like, I mean, it, it's the rational conversation about self-driving cars that we're not able to have. We have a million people dying from car accidents every year. If we convert entirely to self-driving cars and only nine hundred thousand people die, well, that's a victory. But people don't see it that way, uh, and so so we so we need to do better than nature, but we need to do hugely better than nature to have very prevalent adoption of any technology. One of my favorite stats as regards auto fatalities uh, was the rise in fatalities after 9-11. Because after 9-11, a lot of people stopped flying and started driving everywhere. It turns out the increase in auto fatalities during that year was greater than the number of people killed in 9-11. Right. So more people died basically by trying to avoid planes than... So I don't mind when average people or even policymakers, because they're not statistically trained, typically think inconsistently about risks and utility. But when, quote, bioethicists think inconsistently about utility, that does bother me because they often make arguments in which they're super, super critical about any new technology, but they don't do the correct calculation comparing to risks that we already deal with on, in our everyday I wouldn't life. hop on bioethicists as opposed to anybody else pushing policy of certain kind. Most policymakers, most people advocating some kind of policy have a blind spot, often multiple oh, blind spots. I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying I, I expect a higher, I have a higher bar for people in the academy who are pur- purporting to actually advise society on what should be done. Why? I don't know. I just do. Because okay. <laughs> they're, they're getting paid. Yeah, they're getting paid for it. <laughs> People get paid for all sorts all of right. stuff. So now back to the third prediction, 10-year time scale, you were going to comment on it. So the first thought that popped in my head is, again, 
although the technology is categorically different, this is not something that's new to us. You remember East Germany had incredibly successful Olympic teams for years and years uh, without real genetic uh, information about people. But they could look at kids early on. They run them through essentially obstacle courses, all sorts of athletic mm-hmm. abilities. And they could, I mean, but this is before they gave the kids steroids. But they would be able to pick out who was uh, potentially a very, very talented athlete. And I think it's quite plausible that you could get this kind of information very early on from an embryo, no doubt about it. The question is how widespread this will be and whether people be acting on it. Yeah, so I think it's a great point. And, and my, my novel, Genesis Code, is really about this, where U.S. learns that China has a secret genetic enhancement program where they're uh, identifying uh, these kids who have certain capabilities and enhancing those capabilities using gene editing and then placing in them in the equivalent of their Olympic sports schools, but for science and math and engineering and all, all sorts of things, and then weeding out those people to find out who are the champions among, among champions. So certainly just the phenotypic expression of, of life um, will allow us, it does allow us to identify you know, who has the potential to be good at something. But as I write about in the book, you know, how many Mozarts, potential Mozarts are languishing in refugee camps in, in Syria. And so I think that with this knowledge, we're at least going to be able to identify potentially much larger pools of people who could be Einsteins. I mean, some of them may not be Einsteins, but for societies that decide to organize themselves around that model of how human potential could be realized, I mean, this will be very appealing. And it's already starting to, to happen. I mean, Kazakhstan is... is um, screening uh, their potential athletes to see who goes where. The Russian military has announced uh, that they're doing uh, genome sequencing of the recruits to try to use that information in figuring out who goes into what function. I mean, it's very rudiment- rudimentary now, but it, it won't always. I, I think that when it comes to state selection for talent in very, very narrow things, like say you want to find the tallest kid to be on your national basketball team, it is clear that genetic technologies will actually do better than what the old Soviet system or the old Chinese system was doing, like measuring the X-raying your hand to see how big your, you know, how long your various bones were, things like that. You can do better than that now. I think one of the things I was thinking of when Jamie mentioned impacts on society and the way society thinks about life and fate and things like that from better genetic technology, one of the obvious ones to me is that already with the cognitive predictors that we have, you can sort of predict upward and downward social mobility within a family or within a group of people based on DNA alone. And so once the general public, after you know willful obfuscation by the powers that be of, of this technology, after the general public becomes aware that this is actually possible, it, I think, will change the way people view the, the dynamics of society, like how fair is society how much is hardwired in at the beginning? These are all kind of really fundamental questions people have been grappling with since the dawn of time, but we're getting closer and closer to being able to actually answer them. And that could have a sociological impact, I think. I just want to say that the governments you mentioned, Jamie, don't exactly warm the heart. Kazakhstan, Russia, <laughs> you know, East Germany. I guess I mentioned East Germany. And I'm wondering whether this is likely to be a kind of technology get, that gets exploited by essentially anti-democratic authoritarian governments before it actually moves into the mainstream, if it does and if it should. But you have to admit, right, you have to admit we're not in great company when we say that these are the leading states 
on this area? That's one possibility, but well beyond what the Chinese government is uh, may well do, what the Russians may well do, what the Kazakhs may well do, is the primary driver uh, of the adoption of this technology. And and this driver um, is going to be so aggressive that it's going to be extremely difficult for any political system to resist them. And that are that will be parents who, once they believe this technology provides a benefit, are going to demand it. If they can't get it, they're going to either go where they can get it, or they are going to organize and force their governments uh, to adapt to their wishes. And the first tier of this uh, will be people uh, uh, who are carriers of single gene mutation diseases and disorders here in the United States. There is a, a little uh, a group for basically every disease has its community. And some of them are extremely well organized, extremely political, extremely powerful, and they're going to demand this. I have a, a lot of friends in Korea. Uh, and in Korea, they have a national law requiring cram schools, which are these extra education schools people go to, to close at 10 p.m. because people are having their seven and eight-year-old kids going to these cram schools past midnight every single night to prepare prepare for college entrance exams they were going to take a decade in the future. And when I told my friend who had 12 tutors coming um, to his house every week, I said, if you could screen embryos to select one for implantation that has higher IQ, would you do it? And he, he looked at me like I was an idiot. Like, like that was like an unimaginable question because what is what is the alternative to doing it? Like not doing it, it was almost unimaginable. And so I think that parents, yes, there will be states pushing this. Yes, there'll be a regulatory issue of where it is, whatever it is, is legal or not legal or, or gray area. But once it's safe or people think it's safe and beneficial, parents are going to demand it. I want to quote a line from your book, paraphrasing, not exactly quoting. China, by 2020, wants to sequence 50% of all newborns and is investing $9 billion over the next 15 years in this project with no privacy concerns. What, does it, what implications does this have for U.S. policy, in your view? Absolutely huge. For all of us, we feel very rightly that privacy is a personal issue. If somebody comes into my house and snoops around, I feel violated. If somebody gets into my email account and reads my messages, I feel violated. If I um, uh, have sent my mouth swab into 23andMe and they should sell, for example, my personal information to uh, GSK, I feel violated. And yet there is this, that it's just a basic fact that for everybody to benefit from genetic technologies, we need big data sets. We need pools of massive numbers of people's genotypic and phenotypic information. I mean, Steve is the big expert in this on how big are the databases that we need, uh, but it doesn't matter um, how big they are because we are going to get databases in the tens, hundreds of millions, and then billions. And there will be a right answer to what's the right amount of privacy that will 
create a competitive advantage for a society because you can imagine societies where everybody has 100% complete and absolute control of their personal genetic information and every use of their genetic information needs to be would need to be approved by them every research study everything and in that case those the people in those societies would have lots of protection they just wouldn't have really any innovation in the field of of understanding complex genetics. And you could understand the other end of the spectrum where there's no privacy protections. Everybody has access, the researchers and the government have access to everything. And you could understand that on one hand, that could unlock a lot of research uh, and a lot of ability to, to figure out, decode these secrets of the genome. But you could imagine, well, maybe people might revolt because they would feel that their genetic information was being manipulated and used against them. So there's, if you say like no privacy and complete individual privacy as two ends of a spectrum, over time, we're going to figure out where is the optimal place on that spectrum. But the communal answer to that question and each person's perceived individual answer to that question may be different. And that could mean that societies where individually individuals are more empowered end up losing some of their national competitiveness in the name of individual rights and societies where there aren't those kinds of, of privacy protections and china is certainly a good example of that but you can even go more extreme like a, a north korea they are going to have potentially some kind of competitive advantage but this isn't an abstract question i mean we're going to the way we're going to test this just like the way we're going to test what we were talking about before with gold medals is by who gets more gold medals you know in 20 years there'll be an, a genetic amazon and it's going to be based somewhere and the answer to this question will will determine where it's based so jamie i'm curious in the current environment where uh, policymakers in washington are really obsessed with china as a strategic competitor are you sensing some potential for action on the U.S. side, given these uh, what China might do in this area? Yeah, well, we're already seeing it. Um, so and you know this, Steve, through your work with uh, BGI. Um, iCarbonX acquired patients like me, which it seemed like a relatively benign thing, this little company that brought that connected different um, communities of pe people who had organized around mostly single gene mutation diseases. But now that acquisition has been blocked by CFIUS. Uh, <clears throat> Marco Rubio and some others have been making sounds about how genetic data has become a national security resource. So yes, this is very much in the sights of our intelligence services, our elected uh, officials, and it's only going to become more so. Yeah, I, I was aware of CFIUS blocking that what seemed to be a pretty benign acquisition, but I, I have not yet seen any really meaningful investment on the part of the U.S. government uh, in advancing the science on our side of things. And that, that's kind of what I have my eyes peeled for. I mean, we have great investment in the basic sciences. And so that certainly, I mean, China is investing a lot, but all in all, uh, the U.S. still tops the world by a long shot in investment in the basic sciences. And that's why our universities, I mean, nothing, no universities in China, on the whole, can even remotely compete with in these areas with our with our um, our best universities. Um, and then, so we move toward applications. And in the world of applications, China 
is much more aggressive uh, than than the United States. I mean, and and the real the, the kind of near term application, um, it's not going to the primary application isn't going to be reproduction or direct to consumer genetics. It's this transition from generalized to precision to predictive medicine and and healthcare. And so China is certainly all in, and they're able to move much more quickly than we are. And in a way, they benefit from these economies of scale that they kind of have to move toward algorithmic algorithmic medicine in China because they just don't have enough doctors and they need to find a way just to decentralize care. In the United States, where we're spending just an obscene amount, percentage of our GDP on on healthcare, we have so many built-in stakeholders that creates a level of conservatism that's really difficult to uh, to to overcome. And so, um, and, and again, because this medical technology, most of it is not proprietary; it's it's in the applications. And China is really moving quickly on on the application. That doesn't mean the U.S. isn't doing anything. Uh, the NIH is spending is paying a lot of attention on on this on precision medicine, wanting to get it uh, to get it right. But it's it's like it's game on uh, between certainly the United States and China. I have another topic actually that I think I hope we don't miss because we are running out of time. But it was the thought experiment that you describe in your book of accelerating the reproductive cycle, basically shrinking the generation time potentially down to six months or less. And I'd never thought about this possible application of um, iPSCs, as we can call them, as they're called. Can you define that for our audience? So, inducible pluripotent stem cells. These are uh, basically cells that we can uh, create from any normal cell, and we can essentially walk it back in time to an early stage in its development to the point where it has capability of turning into any possible cell in the human body. And Jamie lays out a very interesting theoretical possibility, maybe practical possibility, of simply, I don't want to state your thought experiment for you, but using early stage embryos to generate sperm and egg cells, and then basically reproduce without ever getting to the adult stage. So that sets the stage. Please describe it in more detail. Yeah, so it's exactly as you as you said. Right now, what you could do is if you are using the technologies that we've described, you have one set of parents and they want to have a child using these uh, technologies of IVF and embryo screening, but they want to have a larger number of eggs to choose from. And so we'll, we'll make it near term. So the mother um, has a skin graft taken. Those skin cells are induced into stem cells, into egg precursor cells, and then into eggs. And now let's say she has 10,000 eggs, which are fertilized by the male sperm. Average male ejaculation has about a billion sperm cells. Um, So now you have these 10,000 pre-implanted fertilized embryos, and you grow them all about five days, extract a few cells from each using an automated process and sequence them all because the cost of sequencing is trending toward negligibility. And now from these 10,000, you pick one. And let's just say that you pick one, um, which is a male embryo. And then actually, because at five days, you haven't even had full differentiation into gender. You could just have any embryo. But, But just to make it simple, we'll call it a male embryo. And then another set of parents, they do the exact same thing, 
and they then have, then they select a female embryo. Uh, and again, forget the gender issue now because it's a little more complicated. But now you have a five-day-old male embryo and a five-day-old female embryo. But when you extract cells from each of them, these are embryonic stem cells. So the whole point of an embryonic stem cell is it can become anything. So then you have the, the boy embryo and the girl embryo, and you extract sperm cells from the boy and egg cells from the girl. And then you make 10,000 more of these early stage embryos, sequence them all, select one of those based on whatever it is you are optimizing for. And it most likely would be for some kind of poly polygenic trait. You could be genetic component of IQ or height or personality style or whatever it is. And you could just keep doing that over and over and over kind of forever. And so because of all the technolo technologies, let's say it takes six months per generation. That means in 10 years, you have 20 generations, which is when the average human, it's about a little less than 30 year per generation. And so using that, you could really push change across the, the population. And what I write about in the book is, you know, knowing nothing about genetics, our ancestors took wild chickens laying one egg a month and turn them into domestic chickens laying one egg a day with all of this knowledge and let's say we were optimizing for something whatever it is um, we could really push that thing in ways that um, would be very unfamiliar could be very unfamiliar to people who think about humans in our current format. Now, for our audience, I just wanted to point out that that first stage where you take a skin cell and you induce it to behave like an egg, become an egg cell, that has been successfully done in mouse. I think that's a you know pretty well-accepted result. And, so there, and there are at least a couple labs and I think one startup trying to actually perfect the process for human. You've done it for all sorts of cell types in mice, uh, neurons, um, You've done it for muscle cells. But specifically for eggs, for oocytes, it's been done, and there are people trying to get it, trying to work it out in primate or human. Yeah. And I was in the lab uh, about a couple of months ago. I was in the lab of Michinori Saito in Kyoto. Actually, I spent a full day with him and his team, and this great dinner, really talking about this. And so, you know, it, it's not like just if there's a direct line from anything you can do in a mouse, you can do in a human. But... We know that IPS, that, that that this whole thing of taking back cells in time, we know it works in human cells. That's already been proven. And so it's. I think it's a pretty good bet that, that this science is going to progress, whether it's going to be that the error rate of this process will approximate the error rate of nature. That's for humans. That's still an unknown. Right. So that, at least that first step of your generational process, uh, I would feel fairly confident, or I would not be surprised if 10 years from now that were fairly well perfected. I'm curious what people in Kyoto thought. You know, well, they were very conservative because what, what uh, Saito-san said was the only way we're going to know this is safe is if um, somebody born through this process um, lives an entire life, because we've seen in some of the cloned animals, they seem pretty good earlier in life, and then they have, have problems later. That conservatism could have been applied to test tube babies, right? The first IVF baby. So, yeah. I, that, that was my point. So he, he thought three generations. And so he thought, well, he said, well, it's going to take about 10 years to get where the technology works. 
and then three back-to-back generations. And he, he put those at, because it was Japan, 80 years each, which was 250. And that's just not the way humans work. I mean, I told you about six years from CRISPR-Cas9 to the first human baby. Nobody's waiting. I mean, um, Louise Brown is 41 this year. Uh, it could be that all IVF babies drop dead at 42. We just don't know. But nobody is waiting. We have whatever, six, seven million kids have now been born. for. I've, no one is waiting three, gen, three generations. I don't think that will right. happen. Right. So, so it sounded like uh, taking, out, taking apart that three-generation uh, careful checking, it is, they think 10 years is also roughly the right time scale. You know, 10 years, but that's, the 10 years is like for people making predictions. <clears throat> 10 years is kind of the sweet spot because it's like, well, it's, it's, it's kind of far away to be far away but no one's gonna come back to you next year and say, remember, so every, lots of things seem to be changed. Understood, but we're, we're, we, I think we've kind of focused in this discussion on about a decade as kind of the timescale, not, not infinity, we're all young enough to at least see another 10 years. Now, I, I would point out to these Kyoto folks that obviously if they get the technology pretty well working and they can try it out on, say, monkeys whose life expectancy is much shorter, then I think the safety issue could be largely, you know, not completely resolved, but largely resolved if you did three generations of monkey. I told them that. Yeah, I, I told them that. And I think, that, I think there's also just a, a built-in conservatism to most scientists. Like most scientists... Like if you say, hey, it's this really exciting science, my plan is to totally recreate life on Earth, your funding dries up. And so you, you have to say like, <laughs> I'm trying to be extremely conservative. I'm trying to be responsible. So uh, I think Corey raised this as uh, a way that human evolution could just speed up tremendously. And I think it's not technologically out of our hands. In, in a century, I would be very shocked if we didn't have mastery of these technologies. It's a kind of technology that reminds me of a way in which we can kind of bridge the gap between biology and silicon. Because in some sense, this is how silicon generations happen. You try something out, you make small alterations in it, and over time, uh, things change much faster than they do in biology. And if you're able to do something like this, I'm not arguing that one should, but you could easily see basically revising human biology very, very quickly in a way that would not quite give you Moore's Law, but that would definitely be faster than anything we've ever seen. There are old essays by Freeman Dyson pointing out that what's likely to happen when humans finally get out into space is that we genetically modify ourselves to, for example, be able to do photosynthesis or be much more resistant to radiation, much more resistant to low gravity, um, et cetera, et cetera. And he thought when we finally people the solar system, it'll be a kind of different people, <laughs> humans, but well, it must humans. be. It, it, it must be. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we, that, I mean we'll just use, it's, it's easier to talk about crops. I mean, we're changing our climate so rapidly that we're going to have to change crops in order to, so that people can, can do farming and stay where they are. And if we, I mean, we are a species that's optimized for this kind of life, if the environment around us changes, the old-fashioned way is well, if you're not optimized, you just die. And that's why so many species just die out. We don't like that as humans. And if we are, I mean, we have to become an interstellar species because our planet we know is, and our sun are going away. Um, we can't do it in, in this form. And that's why with, with all of this, we have to think about what's the connection between now and what's possible now and what's ethical now. And tomorrow, 
where we may be facing a different set of circumstances. And so, you know, everybody likes to think, well, the world stays exactly like it is. What are the set of options? But maybe our world could change fundamentally because of climate change, because some kind of, of pathogens uh, that wipe people out, because of some exposure that something happened, you know, some asteroid crashes here. Who knows? Or wanting to live on Mars or Titan. So I'm not really convinced that we will be inhabiting other planets comfortably as a result of changes in our biology. I think it's almost certain that we will develop technology that allows us to live there far sooner and to a far greater extent than we will alter our uh, our ability to generate energy by using photosynthesis. Well, so so if you... Ex- okay, photosynthesis is a pretty big reach, but uh, if you accept this 100-year time scale that will have this sort of fast six-month generation evolution under control, then, you know, the time scale to develop the Star Trek-like technologies that you need to be comfortable in space without changing us and, and the biological technologies, that they are kind of competing on a similar time scale, right? I think they'd be competing, but I think there are details of this sped of evolution you have to really think about. And that's that often evolving traits has negative consequences that would take a while to recognize. I used to study fruit flies, and remember one of the well-known papers involved selecting fruit flies for learning ability. And you could basically raise a fruit fly's ability to learn a task up pretty substantially in a couple of generations. But these flies had serious problems. And it, you know maybe we have genetic technology that allows you to identify those problems in the embryonic stage, but they're much more uh, susceptible to stress. I think they had lower reproductive rates. There are all these consequences that I think Korean researchers were kind of drawing attention to the potential for. And you may not see that unless you actually run the live experiment where you allow the animal to develop for at least a few years, and that's going to rapidly slow things down. I I think we'll be running this experiment in the embryonic stage pretty quickly, but as far as having people walking around 10 generations down. I agree, because evolution is a balance. I mean, it's not like, I mean, there are certainly lots of bugs in evolution, and, and, you know, sometimes we call them cancers or diseases or whatever, but evolution is a balance that's happened over billions of years. I mean, we we may be optimized in certain environments and things can change uh, quickly. So we, we must have a level of humility. We must recognize that this is really serious stuff. We can't be blase about it. We have to have inc- a in- in series of inclusive and forever dialogues about the ethics to make sure that we are values driven. But this science is very, very real. It's moving rapidly. And my view is we should shape it with our best values rather than sit back and let other people's decisions shape our world and ourselves. Yeah, I I certainly agree that the technology is moving faster than society's rate of learning about it or rate of having a deep understanding of it. And and I think that's it's really important what you're doing to try to make people aware of uh, what's going on here. I guess I'm a little bit of a cynic as far as the role of values in this discussion. I don't think this stuff is going to be developed on the basis of our best values. I think, in fact, another line of argument you push, which it's going to be parents' desire to see certain kind of offspring, just the raw desire to succeed and have your kid be better than other kids. I don't think that's based on the best values. I think that's likely to drive things. So, Yeah, and yet, and yet, societies, yet societies develop norms for what is and isn't okay. Um, and I think that's where the, we, we do have these elements of social consensus, and sometimes we can't even see them. 
but I think that, so I, it's not that I feel like the norms will drive everything, but I, I actually do believe that, that social norms set a range of at least socially accepted behavior, and that counts for some. Corey, I might agree with you, the cynical view, your cynical view that uh, norms are not going to drive things self-interest maybe will, and maybe possibly more in a dystopian than a utopian direction. However, on the other hand, it's quite noble to try to be a person who talks to policymakers and leaders like Jamie does and try to make tries to make them aware of, of you know what we can try. Hopefully more than noble. Hopefully it'll have an impact, but... I'm doing my best. Well, Corey's saying you're it's it's it, that you're not going to get there. That's I think I he, think I think I think what he's doing is is really noble and it's a good analytical and intellectual involvement in a very complex issue. But I don't know if good arguments and reason is going to win the day in this context. Right. No, none of us do. But we've had you know, that's exactly what none of us do. But we've had technologies that could have been used in all sorts of ways. And for example, biological weapons or nuclear power, and the norms have actually guided how they have and, and have not been used. And I feel like this is another one of those things where norms aren't everything, but they're also not nothing. Do you remember the Asilomar conference, right? When they, um, yeah, so in the early DNA days, they had this you know, meeting to try to set world standards for what scientists should do and shouldn't do. And and I felt like that wasn't really actually necessary at that time so much, but it is becoming more necessary now. And I think that that's what uh, people like Jamie are trying to do. It's funny, I'm just writing, I'm just in the middle of writing a little blog post that I haven't yet finished or, or put out. And basically I talk about Asilomar. Everyone in the science community says Asilomar, that's the model of what you should do is the early stages of recombinant DNA, the science and scientists and other stakeholders got together. They laid out a responsible set of guidelines. Those guidelines were followed. And that's why consuming GMO crops today is 100% safe. There have been more than 40 years of studies, and it's never been shown that consuming GMOs is any GMO crops is any less healthy for people than otherwise. But Asilomar, in my view, was a total failure. Uh, it could have been worse, but because there wasn't a broad public engagement. The public felt that, well, these scientists and companies like Monsanto are pulling a fast one on us. And that's why now millions of people die in Africa and South Asia because they can't access, they can't use GMO crops. Otherwise, they won't be able to export mostly to, uh, to Europe. And so even if the scientists organize themselves well, it's not going to work unless we have an inclusive um, public, not just engagement, but engagement and empowerment process so that everybody feels at least like they're, they're part of something and part of a decision-making process. I think you're entirely right about GMOs. I'm actually not sure there's much you can do because I think a lot of the fear about them is deeply, deeply irrational. And if you have scientists out in front trying to explain to people the positive benefits of GMOs and the low risks... You're going up against uh, fear of the unknown, and I think a kind of what I call tyranny of the natural. Yeah, I, I think you're counterfactual that they ran Asilomar with more public participation, and that would have fixed this problem. I, that might be a little bit too optimistic. I think I agree with Corey. No, but it's not a 100% story, but it's not a 0% yes. story. I mean, just because there are, there are like with Im the early stages of immunizations, uh, the Jewish community with, with Tay-Sachs screening. I mean, there are things where people get that there's something happening and it's it's significant. And so I think there are these 
moments early on, like with the birth control pill. Uh, in the beginning, there was this whole negotiation with the Catholic Church because the people who developed the pill were trying to say, look, this is just perfectly natural. And that's why they have the off days and have a monthly menstrual cycle. And so the framing of these issues at the beginning can often have a, in some ways, determinative effect on how at least the, the public discourse plays out over time, in my view. I agree with you. All right. Well, we really are out of time. I, we're going to have to have you back, Jamie, because this was so much fun. Good. Yeah, um, it was really a pleasure. I loved it. As, as my final item, I'm going to throw out three sci-fi items, one a movie, one a TV show, and one a book related to genetic engineering that I really liked. And you just add what for our listeners. Uh, so as movies, Gattaca, TV show, uh, Space Seed, which is where the character Khan is introduced in Star Trek, and the book is Dune. By Frank Herbert. So whatever you want to suggest. Wow, old school. Well, I have to say, I am I'm a, old, man. I don't watch much. I no, I'm I'm old. Um, <laughs> so you know, I don't watch a lot of television, but I was addicted to the Battlestar Galactica remake, and so I'm sure because your pod set, your podcast is young. Most of the people who are 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 watching or listening are total nerdy people like us. So I highly, highly uh, recommend that. Uh, for books, I'm a huge fan of uh, Richard Preston and just everything um, that he writes. I just read a book, uh, Orfeo, uh, that is great. And it's this wonderful story about a guy who's a, a, um, uh, he's a uh, composer, but who had, develops uh, this just complete passion for biology. Uh, and and creates this biology lab, and then he's accused of being a terrorist, and he's driving across the country to go visit his daughter, but reliving his whole life. But it's this beautiful thing, the, the connection of kind of the symphony of music and the, the symphony of of biology. And then movies, you know, I don't know if there's a genetics movie that I've particularly loved. I, mean, I liked Gattaca. Although Gattaca just, it really pissed me off because I felt like uh, the Ethan Hawke character, he's putting everybody's life at risk. Yes. Like the last person you want on a space <laughs> program is someone who's not genetically optimized. I believe they should arrest him for that. And a pathological liar and deceiver. Yes, exactly. exactly. But he's human. <laughs> That's the problem. I love humans, but we're not optimized for everything. And every individual isn't optimized for every outcome. And it's it's painful for us because we are addicted to this wonderful belief that anybody can be anything. And I just think that this is this change that's coming. We are looking under the hood of what it means to be a human being. And there, are, you know, a hundred years ago, everybody's saying, oh, we are our hormones. Hormones are everything that just defines who you are. And so we are much more than our genetics, but our genetics really define in many ways a range of possibilities of what we can be. And I think we're going to have to face that. Great. Jamie, thanks very much. All right, guys. I really enjoyed it. Take care. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. And Steve, I should point out that you actually missed two pretty important works of Jamie's that I was fascinated by that we may have a chance to talk about today, but two books on the Cambodian genocide. Is that correct? Yeah, my first book was a history of the Cambodian genocide and specifically why the world failed to respond to something so terrible. 
And the second book, uh, which is also, I'll, I'll explain later, connected to um, my, my belief in the connectivity uh, between nonfiction and fiction, that we have to learn about the world, but then tell stories about the world to bring people into the conversation. So my second book was a novel called The Depths of the Sea, uh, which explored issues around the Cambodian genocide, but in the context of stories of different uh, imagined people involved. Well, I, I was trying to focus us more on futurism and genetic technology, but and maybe its relationship to policy. But that's amazing stuff that uh, you're referencing, Corey. I am curious, since we're on the slight digression, maybe this will get cut out. But Jamie, have you seen this documentary where I think they go back and they actually interview some of the people responsible for the genocide? Do, do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know which one. I certainly have seen a lot of things about the, the genocide, and there was this whole uh, hybrid a UN Cambodian tribunal that's been uh, that's interviewed a lot of people. So it's just, it's really just unimaginably terrible, and that it's so recent. It's in all of our at least the three of our lifetimes, and and I just think that these kinds of things we really we have to understand. We can't just sweep them under the rug. I think genocide is really a fascinating topic to understand political perspectives from because. Whether someone cares about a particular genocide often seems to depend upon their political orientation. And what happened is that many people on the left did not particularly care about uh, the Canadian genocide, often played it down in some ways. And you'll find often atrocities that people don't happen um, in other countries, people on the right don't care about. So it's kind of a fascinating prism to understand you know, what looks like an objective evil, but people bring their political perspectives to it and either minimized or played up for those reasons. Well, people bring people bring their political perspectives to, to life. Like when I was at Oxford and I was working on uh, my dissertation, which became that first book, Noam Chomsky uh, came. And at that time, when you're writing a PhD, you are the world expert in your little narrow thing. So I knew absolutely everything, every detail about the international response to the, to the Cambodian genocide. And so I ask Noam Chomsky this question, because he's a real villain in this story. I mean, he was one of the people who was uh, denying these very credi credible stories that the genocide was, was taking place. And so he kind of brushed me off. Uh, and then he said, all right, well, well, send me a letter about it. And I sent him this letter, and it was this point by point, as only a PhD student uh, can, can do, just saying, here was what was happening. Here's what you said. Here's what was, and we got in this very Kind of heated response. So you're absolutely right. And I think that maybe then to pivot to our topic of today, in every generation, there are so many different, huge, morally vexing issues. And for the challenge for all of us as humans, uh, whatever our political perspective, is to take a step back from ourselves and really try to say, you know, how do we do the right thing? And doing the right thing is often really complicated because when it's clear, then if it was clear and easy, everybody would do the right thing. But it's always complicated and difficult. And whether the issue is how to respond um, to a genocide, and maybe when you don't even have all of the information, or maybe when there are political forces that make intervening extremely difficult, or even something like now where we have the tools to recreate life on Earth, and we could do it in a way that helps our planet and helps everybody, or we could do it in a way that harms us all or, or wipes us all out or other, other species out. And we have to find a way to really engage with these tough, difficult, complex issues so that we can find the best way forward that optimizes the good stuff and minimizes the bad stuff. 
just one last point I should say, because <laughs> Chomsky's actually, uh, uh, he's an old friend of mine. I was a student of his, and I was actually thinking of him as I was making those comments. The one thing I really do like about Noam is that for all this ideological rigidity on many points, he will engage. You know, you write him a letter, he will write back. He'll write a long letter back. I mean, he's not writing these now. He's 90, right? But I've had friends who had debates with Chomsky that went in the tens of, of single space pages. Yeah, and, me too. And and that's something that I think is completely, it's something that sort of disappeared. I don't know if anybody ever really did it to the extent he did it. But these days, arguments often devolve into name calling. And Chomsky yeah. didn't do that. He'd respond from the facts from his perspective. He'd wait for them to come back from your perspective. And it was kind of a respectful argument. I wish we could really go back to those days. I think something was, yep. it was really a, a wonderful time that I think is lost in current political debates. Okay, I have to tell my Chomsky story just because it turns out, I guess all of us know Chomsky a little bit. Yeah. When I was a junior fellow, uh, he had been a junior fellow as well. We could have guests for dinners and lunches, so I invited him to dinner. But he had a very tough relationship with some of the senior fellows he didn't get along with. Bert Drebin, maybe you know that name. So um, he came to lunch because he wanted to meet the younger junior fellows, not the senior fellows. So he came, and we hung out, and we had a great time. And uh, I, I really enjoyed getting to know him. He actually has a pretty decent sense of humor. I worked with a mathematician who also had an interest in Chomsky and grammar. And this guy was like Chomsky's proof checker. So he attended every one of these seminars at MIT that Chomsky used to have. And whenever Chomsky got stuck, he would ask my friend, oh, uh, can you fix this for me? And so I actually went through, uh, I forgot what it's called, the the name for his uh, structural, um, the, the way that he deconstructs sentences. Um, the transformational grammar? Yes. So I went through that in great detail with my friend and I was a skeptic. I didn't think actually it followed rigid rules. I think Chomsky was making things up at various times. And he was never able to convince me that actually what Chomsky was doing was fully axiomatized or uh, rigorous. So anyway, we, we, we should discuss that on some other episode. 